Hey, what's up, everybody? Uh, we have a special episode of the Pipeline Podcast for you this week. We want to do a little something different, and I had a, a, a roundtable, uh, thanks to Matt Hines, uh, with Wendy White, who's the CMO of Tiger Connect, Chris Kohler, who's the CMO of Box, uh, and myself. And we spent about and Matt, and we spent about an hour uh, talking about a little bit of everything: uh, 2022 planning, what's changed in the last year and a half. How much of B2B has really shifted to digital? And we even talked about uh, career management, uh, managing remote teams. It was, it, was a, it was a really good discussion if you are into B2B sales and marketing, which I uh, think you're here for. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. And we'll be back next week uh, with more interviews. But um, I hope you like this format. And if you do, uh, send me some feedback. We'd love to hear your, your comments on it. All right, let's get into this episode. Real quick, want to just give our, our guests a chance to quickly introduce themselves. We've got an all-star panel here um, and very excited for this conversation. Wendy White, uh, CMO from Tiger Connect, um, actually in the office today uh, in LA. So Wendy, thanks for joining us. Good morning, everybody. Uh, for those of you who don't know what Tiger Connect is, I think our other two guests may have a little more well-known company. Uh, we're um, kind of think of us like Slack for healthcare, very specific collaboration communication platform for healthcare experiences. Real excited you're here. Also excited, Chris Kohler is the chief marketing officer at Box. Some of you may have heard of a small company called Box, who um, is, you said you're in Park City now, right? Yeah, yeah. I took uh, advantage of the remote work and uh, decided like uh, several Californians uh, to try a new place. And uh, it is October and it is snowing. So that is uh, a little bit of a lifestyle change, but uh, hopefully we're going to get a, a strong winter here with uh, with the early snow. Love it. Uh, and last but not least, Dave Gerhardt, Chief Brand Officer at Drift, founder of the DGMG community. Um, thanks, for, thanks for doing this with us, Dave. Yeah, nice to be here. Good to see everybody. Always happy to talk about marketing from the comfort of my own home. Um, it is. And, and, and I think, you know, we were given Wendy, we didn't really plan on having uh, bookshelves all behind us. Um, but, um, you know, it's, um, it, it is where we are. But Wendy, I think maybe we'll start with you. And we'll just gonna start round robin this a little bit. We were talking before we all before we click the start webinar button, we were talking about some of the changes that we have seen for ourselves in the last year and a half, the ability to sort of move somewhere else and still largely sort of get the same work done. And obviously that has changed a lot of sort of how we've operated our own marketing efforts as well, right? Where, you know, it was one thing to say, well, you know, should we do our booth different this year? Or should we do a different happy hour party at the event? Well, what happens if events go away altogether? And what happens if when they come back, people aren't as willing to go? Um, so how, how has, I mean, especially relative to your digital strategy, how has your go-to-market effort changed in the last year and a half, especially around some of those adjustments that are now becoming permanent fixtures of yeah. your strategy? Well, I think uh, I think we've all seen uh, the rise of these, you know, virtual events um, and the relative importance of them in our uh, marketing mix. You know, I started off last year um, working in travel, business travel, um, and as you could probably imagine, that was chaotic and crazy. Um, and when we started uh, trying to offer educational 
you know, virtual events for our market, you know, to help them understand what was going on. We saw events that, you know, previously would have pulled maybe 100 or 200 folks get upward of 15 or 1700 folks attending. Now that's, I think, died off uh, a little bit. It was, we've all gotten a little bit of a virtual event or webinar overload. Um, the numbers have come down. Um, and also the bar has just increased in terms of the expectation that your content is going to be incredibly compelling and rich uh, for your audiences. Well, and I think that there's the what we observe and how we're changing sort of our go-to-market efforts. And then hopefully a lot of that is based on what we see from our buyers, right? I mean, the best companies in the world, sustainable best companies in the world aren't focused on necessarily product and service. They're focused on customers and problems. And if you follow them, then you're going somewhere. And I'm, I'm curious, Chris, how you have seen some of that shift over time. I would imagine that, you know, going remote is a bit of a boom for a business like yours. What shifts in buyer and customer behavior have you seen and how have those led to sort of, you know, priorities for you from a marketing perspective? Well, I, I think to, you know, to sort of piggyback on what Wendy said is there, the benefit of digital first is the scale and the reach, right? Where we can actually do these events and we can reach a much bigger, broader audience that might not have been able to travel in for whatever the event. We just did our, our large scale event, Boxworks, a couple of weeks ago. And again, it is less expensive. The reach is great, but you're missing that sort of personal connection around that. Um, so that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out long term is, is it hybrid? What does this look like? You know, how do you get the best of both where you can have small intimate gatherings with with people if they're willing to actually get on a plane and the bar is really hot, really high. So you have to actually create these experiences and we're all competing with each other of like who can have the best guest speaker and we're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars crazy now getting there. Um, but I do think this is one that we're going to be struggling with for the next 12 to 18 months of how do we actually drive engagement because the challenge is just because we have an event going doesn't mean that they're fully engaged and paying attention or they join for the first half hour drop off and then don't come back. And so there's, there's, a, there's that really that, that, that intimate sort of engagement that you just don't get in, in digital. I think we're struggling with. I think, I think, I think, I think it's a perfect time to just like rethink. I think one of the missing ingredients in, in marketing is like ultimately your marketing channels are a reflection of where you think your customers are spending time. Right. And so like, you have to use the context of 2021 to make that assessment. And so like three years ago, easy to travel, no problem. Having an event was a great move as a brand. And cause a lot of, a lot of these bigger companies, you know, I'm sure Chris can talk to this, but like you don't do the big event just for pipeline. That is a brand event. That is an employment brand event. That is a culture event. You, you do it for many other things than hardcore sales revenue. And so like, I'd actually argue that the, if you really want to drive revenue from an event in a B2B context, your better bet is to go small and yeah. probably do like targeted things, which people are more likely to go to. And so I think you have to think about like, okay, what am I what am I trying to achieve with this? I want something that can achieve this type of reaction, this type of press, whatever. Maybe the vehicle used to be an event, but now it's something online, or maybe you go and do a fully branded, you know, TV show, or you do something on, on YouTube. I think that the, the channel is different. I think you can't just plug, you can't just take the playbook. Well, we've always done events in B2B. And so let's keep trying to jam it in. And it's like, no, this is the perfect opportunity to press pause, readjust based on all the channels you have, and then make a new strategy moving forward. Well, and Dave, I think that it's the, what does that creativity look like moving forward? And, and I think, 
you know, from an events perspective, we've been doing that for 20, 30 years where it's the same playbook of field marketing. It's like, hey, we're going to go drive executive digit. We're going to do dinners. We're going to take them to these events. We're going to work through that. Now in this new world, like one, people are, are dispersed. And so even on this call, like everyone is sort of all over, you know, all over the US and all over the world. Like, how do you do that um, in this new world? And maybe maybe that playbook, like you said, just needs to be thrown out and we need to reimagine what, what different types of content and engagement and, and what video brings and all that, that uh, it's sort of a, the next evolution of, of marketing, uh, which is kind of fun to be part of for sure. You know, I think when, when everything shut down, you know, in March of, you know, 2020, you know, I think there was that, I can't remember what day it was when like the NBA shut down the same day we found out Tom Hanks had, you know, COVID-19 like that, that felt like a very monumental hey, really day. real. Yeah. I mean, on that day, I remember some, he's around that day when I heard someone say, oh yeah, they're not going to play ba baseball shut down. They're not going to play till, you know, the all-star break. I'm like, it, this can't possibly last that long. Here we are a year and a half later. And it's still around. Right. And so, you know, I thought it was going to be easier to plan for 2021 when we got the end of last year. Here we are in almost November. And so planning for 2022 hasn't gotten any easier. I love, Dave, your comment about sort of your go to market strategies, reflection of where you think your customers are. Wendy, where do you think your customers are going to be next year? Is it going to be a continuation of this or how and when do you start to sort of you know, sort of accelerate through the curve a little bit and assume that they're going to change behavior again? Well, you know, I, again, working in healthcare, my customers right now are still engrossed in, you know, full hospitals uh, and uh, figuring out how they're going to bring in revenue, you know, with elective surgeries, you know, potentially still being on hold as they're dealing with, you know, full uh, hospitals from COVID patients. So hopefully that's getting better now. And we're starting to see you know, it changed in that, uh, but we have to be, we, we have to be in particular, just really um, eyes on, you know, what's happening with caseloads in which cities and, you know, where can we market, um, you know, talk about being where your customer, for us, it's like down to like, which cities are doing uh, well at which points and, and how do we do outreach in, you know, hyper local situations. So there's a lot of thinking about, you know, hyper local, small events, like Dave said, um, really intimate customer stories, even if they're virtual events and, and then also getting back to, uh, to live. And I want to, I also want to pull back a little bit and talk, not just about go to market strategy and marketing leadership, but I, I've seen so many examples in the last year and a half of mark, chief marketing officers and marketing leaders stepping into a broader, deeper leadership role in their company. Um, knowing that like a lot of things are changing employees, customers, um, prospects, partner ecosystems, um, and just really sort of not leading as a campaign manager, as a marketing officer, but leading as a chief market officer, as someone who's really defining what that market looks like. And I'm curious, Chris, how, how you have seen that sort of within Box as well as with other companies and leaders as well, where this has been an opportunity for, market, for marketing leaders to be and to embrace a broader, full leadership role in the company. Yeah, I mean, if you look at my background, like I'm not the traditional CMO that came up through the marketing ranks, right? I've, I've had a lot of different roles around customer success and being in the sales organization and being in product and all that. So I've always sort of thought about this as a GM uh, moving forward. So when I took over the marketing organization a couple of years ago, I, I uh, reoriented the team thinking about, hey, it's not about sort of the, the funnel and pipeline. It's about that whole customer experience. We need to be as uh, thoughtful of revenue and retention as we do around pipeline and campaigns and everything else. So 
we just sort of started out that way. And luckily we had a good rhythm before this pandemic started. Um, and it, it has sort of served us well as my chief, you know, chief revenue officer, my chief customer officer, we're all aligned. You know, we're three business leaders thinking about how are we going to grow the business together uh, versus like, hey, marketing, you go, you go over here, run the campaigns, drive, you know, drive demand. We'll pick that up and we'll sell. And then CS, you go off and you, you adopt and renew those customers. Like, no, we're all aligned across that entire customer journey. And, uh, you know, that's, that's fairly unique. Um, it is, I haven't seen that across a lot of organizations, but I was lucky to have two sort of partners in crime that just had the same approach for sure. I, I, I have to echo that, Chris. Uh, for me, that's been one of the most satisfying things about my current role is that uh, triumvirate of the kind of go-to-market or revenue leadership. We call it the revenue engine. We meet collectively every other week and look through our entire data set around our pipeline, our churn, our retention. We have you know, um, really good open discussions about where we're going to use which levers across um, our three teams. Um, and, and now we're doing, you know, 2022 planning, we're, we're, you know, looking at every ideal customer profile and saying, you know, where do the dollars go across those, you know, what's our strategy between the three teams? And, and that's a really good place to be. Just think like, at some point, we got to accept that this is the reality of where we're at. And instead of saying, we've been going this way for a year and a half, it's like there's before and after and you can either mm -hmm. decide like you have to make the decision that like the things that may have worked a year and a half ago, stop hoping that they're going to work again. It's a, it's a, it's a new game that you have to figure out how to be playing. Um, and I just think one thing that frustrates me is when we talk about digital, I think everybody just goes to like, okay, we got to spend, we got to spend on digital. And I actually don't think that the first gut reaction should be to spend. It should be to create. Like what, and, and to your point about like the marketing, marketing being integrated into all these other functions, like you need help from the product. You need, you need a product strategy and company vision that match. How are we going to get people to discover us and interact with us in this new world? And if your field sales experience and website experience is fundamentally broken, then like that's the stuff that you need to be rethinking right now. And so like, you know, now, like, why do you see more enterprise companies adopt a freemium type of strategy? Because they're like, damn it, our product is good. All the marketing in the world isn't going to be as good as getting you to use our product. And so I think you have to, as the marketing leader, you have your channels, but you have to think more broadly about what are we, my job is to help people, uh, is to help sell our product. That's like the guiding principle. Okay, so then what are all the barriers? Like, how, how do we how do we actually need to do that? And it's not just about. I don't want people to hear us talk about digital today and and I think that means like go spend more on LinkedIn or go you know crank up crank up more on AdWords. This is a fundamental shift in how people try and buy your product, even for high six figure SaaS contracts. This is all now happening fully online. What are all the steps that you need to happen? If it is a nine-month sales cycle and all of these things need to happen, how do, how can now how can those things all now happen online? What do people need to know, like, and trust you? What do they need to move through that process? I think it requires a full rethinking of that, not just go and do things on on digital. I know Dave didn't say product-led growth, but Matt was dying to jump in and say product-led growth. I could see 
see it, Matt, um, right? And for those who have the buzzword bingo out, like there you go, I said it, I, I put it out there, but um, Dave, I couldn't agree more. Like we had a really great chat last week in the CMO group that Matt and I are both in about product-led growth and, and about that you know, experience, creating either a snack of your product online or creating an entire strategy around getting people to try it. And then more and more experiences building up that and, and you know, sell them up and, in the platform. And just like the, the product, the product fit is so important. Like, do you think that the Zoom marketing team was pounding their head against the wall, wondering how they're going to build pipeline for the last two years? No, they've had more demand than they can keep up with. And so like, that's just one example of how there are multiple ingredients that matter. Like, you know, time, what's happening, your place in the market, your, you know, your actual, how people use your product, all those things matter. And your, your job as a mark, as the marketing leaders to be able to push in all those areas of the business, not just like put lipstick on a pig and go, you know, shop it around and hope people are going to use it. David, it's interesting what, what, what you guys, um, we, we actually actually run a cross-functional digital, what we call digital strategy group for Vox. And we are fortunate enough to have been in sort of this product-led growth around a freemium strategy. Um, it, so we've always had that as sort of our motion of sort of the network effect associated with people trying the product and then bringing them in as paying customers. But we, we think about it under like three umbrellas. One is sort of core, how do I from an upstream digital marketing efforts to get and drive demand into both the product and the website and others. We have a freemium, we have a, a sort of conversion team, a cross-sell upsell team, we have a retention team, but I also partner very, very closely with our product organization uh, around the onboarding experience and adoption. Because again, I can go drive all of these net new users, but if they're not actually actively using the product and who else knows how to engage with customers in a way that's going to get them to drive action, um, th that we do that. So again, it's like that entirety of the customer lifecycle, I see it's sort of my responsibility from sort of top of funnel all the way through to renewal, marketing can help play and facilitate that journey is sort of how I think about um, my role in the organization. And we're just like, we're in a new era now, like, like, like lead gen has become table stakes. Anybody can do lead gen. Anybody can build an email list through content. That was like very much like 10 years ago, you know, HubSpot, inbound marketing, like th th that is table stakes. Now everything is digital. Everything is online. And so, you know, what separates the great, the, the good marketers from the great ones is actually being able to like create demand. How, how can you create demand? That, and, and demand means people are coming to my website, not just because they want to go to my webinar, but they're raising my hand saying like, I need to try this product. I need to talk to the sales team. That's, that's the stuff that you want to be able to harness, not, you know, setting up an ebook and, and going shopping around the 300 contacts that downloaded it to the sales team because sales team, they know those not, are not are not buyers, and like every everybody's customers are smarter today because we're all shopping. We're all gonna even if I know that I'm going to buy a box. Everybody told me that's the right solution for my company. I'm gonna I'm gonna do. We bought a minivan a couple months ago. We knew we were gonna get one particular one, but just to do our own due diligence, we went and drove the other two. Right. And, and so like, that's how everyone is also buying in, in the world that we live in today. And so, you know, how are you going to, how are you going to compete in that world as, as a business? I think those are the things you have to be thinking about. I, I might have said to the whole company during our um, like midsummer strategy update to the company, I might've said that MQL is dead and I freaked out. 
many of the marketers in my team, but I really believe it. You know, I, I'm hundred percent with you, Dave. It's not about lead gen. It's not about like put up a ebook and see who gives you their name. Like if, you know, free the content and uh, focus on the, the experience and the demand gen and the, you know, as a, as I've heard a few other great marketers say, you know, inspire, entertain, engage, stop worrying about uh, putting a gate in front of an asset. Chris, we were talking about this before we got started that, you know, this, you know, you were, we were talking about the difference between, you know, appointment setters as BDRs and demand creators, right? And the fact that it's, you know, no matter what you are selling, no matter how complex the buying process or the buying committee is, it's not a single form fill that's going to do this. It's not the white paper download that generated the deal. There's some, there's a body of work that requires some consistency to build trust, to build credibility, to build preference, to build an understanding of a problem that someone may or may not know that they have. And so I think who else other than the chief market officer, the chief marketing officer to, that understands the customer, that understands what it takes to build authentic. I love your concept, Dave, of, you know, a lead is not demand, right? Those are very different things. Chris, what, what are some things you're seeing that are working to help orchestrate that across departments and across a body of work? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's it's a mentality within the organization as well, right? Because everyone has KPIs that they're trying to optimize against. But those KPIs, ultimately, in the, the day, it should lead to revenue, right? Ultimately, we're trying to grow as an organization. And some of these tactics are sort of ends to a, to a mean, right, that we're trying to grow the business. And I see too often departments like high-fiving saying, hey, I did my job. I got this across the line. Um, and then it's not actually turning into revenue. And I've seen that a lot from a marketing perspective where you know we're, we're, we're creating all of this, Dave, as you described, sort of opportunities to have conversations. Maybe it's MQLs and others that aren't actually converting. And we might be missing uh, from a sales number perspective, but we're high-fiving because, hey, we did our job. It's like, well, shit, that doesn't matter. Like, who cares? You know, the company doesn't grow based on how many leads or MQLs we've created. It, it grows when we actually, um, when, we, when we close more business or retain uh, more business as well. So I think it's like change the mentality of the organization not to think about those KPIs, but think about the big KPIs, revenue, retention um, are the things that ultimately matter. And then they could start to think, change their mindset around what is it, the, the tactics we need to go do that ultimately are gonna help with that. And so if we do some sort of activity, um, the, the measurement isn't just pipeline. What if it's just engagement? Like one of the, one of the big challenges I think you know, especially SaaS companies in general struggle with is we keep putting out new innovation, new capabilities, and customers get sort of stuck in the mindset of how they think about you. Yet the product team is delivering all this innovation and no one's actually using it. Um, so one of the things that I'm trying to do with my team is, is eliminate the phrase, I didn't know that you guys could do that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as, a, as with our existing customers. It's the thing that, that kills me the most because you're, you know, when you get into these, uh, are they getting value out of what we're, the services we're providing? And too often, you know, marketers, we should be driving, you know, that, that sort of awareness and the demand of these new capabilities with existing customers to help us grow and cross-sell and retain them. So just things like that, I think it's like a mentality for sure. Um, we're starting to get some good questions in from the audience. So thank you um, to Nimi. Good to see you here. Thank you, Dave. We're going to get to some of these questions. If anyone else has a question, here's the deal. If you want, I'm going to just ask these questions of our group. Is it more a function of sort of where the buyer is and what they need to see in the channel is just sort of fits in in the right place naturally. I'm curious how you guys are thinking about outbound versus inbound, especially as you plan for next year. I think outbound to me, typically today at most modern companies is coming on the sales side. It's not really 
I don't know. I'm not sure out, outbound marketing, I guess you could call that advertising or other channels, but I think in the simplest form, doing outbound is typically done by uh, sales reps. And I would say at most companies and, and Wendy and Chris can, can uh, correct me if this has been different in their experience, but uh, there's some mar sales and marketing together have a shared pipeline goal. For example, the company revenue goal is 10 million. Therefore, sales and marketing together need to add three million, you know, add whatever, $30 million in pipeline this quarter. Of that 30 million, marketing is going to create 70% of it. Sales is going to create 30% of it. And then and this is where the planning is so important. The how of that, well, how are we going to create 30% of pipeline through sales? Uh, that's going to be through BDRs, prospecting. That's the outbound motion. That's how I've seen it typically. Well, and, and Chris, we were talking earlier about sort of this blurred line between sort of sales and marketing and where does the BDR sit and what is their role? And is it, you know, is it just a siloed like appointment setting machine? Like that doesn't work sustainably well. And, and Dave was really sort of, you know, his question really gets down to, you know, it's, it's outbound selling versus inbound marketing and lead follow-up, right? And so, you know, I know you're pretty passionate about sort of how this mix works and how you integrate this. So curious to get your thoughts here. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it was interesting, Dave, you just mentioned that, like, I just got up, I had to drop off our global pipeline call with North American EMEA, where together sales and marketing across pods are trying to figure out what does that mix look like, what's working, what's not working, and, and drive the collaboration. Um, and, and we have both an inbound and an outbound team all under the sales organization. Um, and we do that partly because of just career pathing. Right. And so, you know, we we hire sort of early career people, they get an opportunity, toughest, some of the toughest jobs, uh, quite frankly, um, in, in the industry. We, you know, they they sort of earn their your stripes there. And then you hope that that you promote them into sort of an we have an SMB and a mid-market and enterprise. So they, they sit in sales primarily because we want them to have career paths, you know, moving forward. Um, but marketing obviously plays a very, very close role around what is the messaging, what are the sales plays, how, you know, how are we doing this together? So, uh, but right now it, it lives in sales just because there's, there's career path opportunity for them. How does the BDR function fit into how we think about demand gen? It's not just a post lead or post demand sales function. It's part of an integrated approach. The BDR, SDRL, to Chris's point, is the hardest job, I think, in marketing and sales. There's zero doubt about it. Um, and... Um, and you can make it easier by orchestrating it for them. Give them the right tools, give them the right, um, you know, environment. So, you know, uh, yes, inbound is super critical, but not inbound in the sense of somebody came and downloaded a case study. Please don't send that lead to the BDR to have them work. That person is not ready. You're just going to interrupt them in their sales process. Like let them show high intent. So we we tend to think about like the inbound outbound part of that of of you know like let's find people who are actually in market. Um, let's then decide how to surround that buying committee. We have a very you know complex enterprise sale. We want to know who else is in that buying committee and and try to reach out to them. So our motion is like if, if we see an account surging or we see you know some great inbound, then let's say like let's figure out the other personas that have a role in that um, buying committee process and surround them with uh, you know some um, outbound sequences, et cetera, to try to hit the right selling messages for everybody in that buying committee. So, and and we, uh, you know, and, and we try to do that in a very orchestrated way um, around that that concept of somebody or an account being in market. It's way more successful than throwing up a webinar and calling every one of your webinar leads. Please don't do that. 
this is where the product uh, experience matters or, or whatever. This is where the buying experience for your product matters so much because yeah, if the exercise is just follow up, <laughs> hey, send this person. Because what does follow up honestly mean for 90% of us out there? Follow up means BDRs send 10 emails over the next 15 days and then they get recycled. Where like if you just revisit that and said, well, what are we actually trying to get them to do? We're trying to get them to book the meeting. Why have they not taken a meeting? Is it because they're busy? Is it because this isn't a real pain right now? Is it because they're kind of in like, they're not really buying yet, but maybe they'd see a demo. Like I, I've done this, right? I've been like interested in something, book a meeting, it kind of falls off. So there's, there's oftentimes three or four reasons why someone is not actually taking that meeting. Or surprise, it might not be relevant or interesting content. And so just you simply sending 15 emails over the course of two weeks is not going to be the thing. And so I like... This is where you have to really push and think about like, forget about the fact that we're going to send 10 follow-up emails. Like, is there an experience we should be driving towards? Like, are we trying to get them to do something? How can we meet them there and do it? This is again why that product-led growth approach is so powerful. Here's, a, here's more of a small business example, but um, I'm, I'm writing a book and I'm, I have a landing page and I, I used ConvertKit for it, right? And this is not a plug. I have no affiliation to them, but it was free. I got 800 signups on my waiting list on ConvertKit. And then they emailed me and they're like, hey Dave, uh, enter your credit card because you're locked out of your account because you've gone over the limit. And so if you want to reach out to those people, and so damn it, guess what I did? I gave them the quickest $30 a month I've ever given anyone in my life. And now I'm a customer. And like, that's one small example how like, did ConvertKit need to creatively follow up with me a hundred times? No. Did one of their sales drive have to send me that email like where the file cabinet fell on me? You know, like those like old corny memes. Like it shouldn't be, a, your follow-up efforts shouldn't be a gimmick. There should be something that is baked into the DNA of like the solution you're trying to get people into. Yeah, David, it's a good point. And again, how how quickly can you get them into a an experience uh, to actually solve the business problem of what they were looking for before? Versus, hey, it's a it's a set of like you said, a set of ten emails that ask me if I have time today, uh, you know, for a fifteen minute call. And it's like, guys, like this this these strategies just don't work any longer. Um, we're all inundated with just so much messaging that we just have to change that approach. And and like you said. Uh, we're spending a tremendous amount of time both on our freemium effort, but also our trial experience. Uh, get get people's hands on the product because uh, that's the best selling motion versus uh, you know sending them another another piece of content for sure. I want to pivot to our roles as leaders internally. Um, you know, it's been an interesting year and a half as we've seen just people not just like you know you know working on a pivot in go to market motions, but also working through their own lives, you know, now working from home, uh, we continue to see, you know, elements of the great resignation as people now sort of decide they want to go somewhere else. You know, we're, we are, we have a lot of hats we wear as chief marketing officers. You've got your external marketing leadership. You've got your peer leadership on the executive team. Let's talk about your marketing teams and the things that you've, that have become higher priorities for you in building a culture of just building the right culture for your organization to drive results, productivity, but also, you know, value for your employees. Um, Wendy, I mean, you're fairly new at Tiger Connects. I mean, yeah. you joined well after the pandemic started. Would love to hear what you found there when you started and what things have been a priority for you to build your team. I think the biggest priority has been, um, 
trying to find a way to re remove a little bit of, of the work stress that, that we artificially create on ourselves. Um, and I think that is uh, getting people to focus on the KPIs that matter and put a lot of stuff aside. Um, and also just the, um, I don't know, the culture of collaboration and support for each other. Um, for us, that, that um, definitely played a role with talent. Like prior to the pandemic, uh, Tiger Connect had a culture of being in the office, um, which I think, you know, we were in LA. So a lot of uh, commuting, um, allowing people to use that commute time differently now, right? Um, building a strategy of uh, letting people, you know, uh, block their calendars for work time, block their calendars for family time, block their calendars for pick up the kid time and not uh, scheduling meetings over that. Like there's a lot of things that you have to think about and do differently around how to collaborate with a distributed team and also how to look for talent in different places and then onboard them, you know, during a pandemic. There's just been a, a, a lot to think about as a leader. Mm -hmm. Chris, I mean, you, you've moved as part of this, um, you know, curious sort of as you sort of manage an increasingly remote team, or what, you know, same question to you. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think for us, it's been sort of empathy, transparency, and trust um, around this and, and being vulnerable as a leader as well, where you're like, hey, like team, I'm struggling with this work-life balance and I'm freaking tired and, <laughs> you know, and, and just being, I think, vulnerable that everyone's dealing with a different situation, right? And, and some people have kids, some people live with three, you know, three roommates and they're struggling all like trying to figure out how to make this work. Um, there's different, uh, different restrictions based on where you live in the world, right? All of those things. So I think that's one is just having empathy that like we're all struggling with this. This isn't like, hey, us as leaders, we got this all dialed in and we're good. Um, I think the other big one has been um, over communication. Uh, and I think what my communication to the team is amped up probably five to tenfold uh, versus pre-pandemic -pan where everyone is distributed. I've had a lot of people in the team have left the Bay Area and moved to other places um, around that. And, you know, so I think that's peace. And then, uh, you know, talking about mental health, right, and taking time off and breaks. Uh, one of the things that I think there's, a, there's been a couple of things. One, video is exhausting. We all know this. Um, but it's the default medium. I think it's like something, it's sort of innate nature of us. We want to be seen. We want to be, to make sure that, hey, we're working, we're here, we're on the video, we're not doing something else. Like some of the things we're trying to figure out is like, let's go back to the old school of like, I'm going to call you for a one-on-one. -on -one. Like we're not jumping on video. Like I'm just going to call you and we're going to talk and you can move around and you can get stuff done around your house or go pick up your kids or whatever it is. So again, I think it's just this, I think for the first 18 months, it was everyone sitting in front of their desk. Yep. Everyone's, everyone is there. They're on video. They're feeling like they're productive and work through. Um, but moving forward, like we have to do more asynchronous. We got to do less video. We just got to have more freedom around this because this isn't sustainable. Um, and, and, I'm, and I'm seeing the burnout for marketing, especially. And so I'm, I'm trying to do my best to encourage them, right, to just do this differently uh, moving forward. We have a what we call the no apology zone. Nobody has to apologize if they have to, you know, uh, not be on video or, you know, miss or a, a scheduled, you know, team stand up because they got to take their kid to the doctor, or whatever. Like creating that safe space for people to feel like it's okay for them to have the appropriate work life balance or deal with their own stress or anxiety. Like I even just tell people, like when I'm 
having a period where I'm feeling really anxious, I'll be the first to admit it um, because you just kind of need to normalize that it's okay to talk about these things and it's okay to be feeling that. The burnout is really real. I think um, Russ Somers, who is the CMO at Trust Radius and he's CMO at Lithio now, I think I remember him saying, you know, when you're one-on-ones that hopefully you're having on a regular basis with, with folks on your team, ask them how they're doing and ask it twice. Yeah. Because the first time you ask that question, like, oh, I'm doing pretty well. I'm like, okay, like, how are you doing? How are you really doing? Yeah. Right. Like, and, and show and, and do, ask that twice and do that on a consistent basis and prove to people you're not just doing it as small talk. Because I think some people, they feel like, I, I, I really am very anxious. I'm very worried about X, Y, and Z. There's other things that are clogging my brain, but I don't want to burden my boss about it. Or like what they, they don't want to hear, I'm not doing okay. They want to hear I'm fine. So we can go on and talk about pipeline or whatever. Right. And Chris, I see you nodding your head. I mean, I think, you know, it, this is part of being a leader today, right? I mean, you know, when my dad was leading, like this stuff wasn't talked about to me. I mean, thank goodness it is because this affects the whole person. The whole person comes to work, not just the employee. Yeah, I, think- I do have one. I, I'm coming at this from an interesting perspective where I, I'm in a role right now where I don't have a team and I don't have direct reports. And so there's not, I won't, I won't offend anybody by, <laughs> by saying this. Uh, but having been that person in the past, I, I, I think one of the hard things, though, is that we, you can only, you can only help, you know, you can only be so transparent and so helpful with somebody where you have to enable your team to manage their own time and manage their own uh, careers. Because I think so many times I've had conversations with somebody who's telling me that they're burnt out and I'm telling them, take the time, take the, you know, and you have to actually, and, and I've seen this happen so many times that we're like, it's always the person who works, the, you know, the, the late worker, the hardest worker, they're grinding, they're grinding, they're grinding. They need to take that first vacation and come back to work and realize, huh, everything didn't break. <laughs> life, life went on. And so like you, you know, even for me, I still have, I, I still have to do that. Right. And so I think like, I, I, don't, I wish there was a way to like force people to take the time because I, I do have the conversation with a lot of high performers that are like, I know I'm stressed, but I just, there's always something. I just got to get it through this next month. Well, so-and-so's out now. And so I can't go out. You have to really push people and make them take the time off of work, off of Slack, off of email, like literally do not respond because how many times do we all say, are we, are we off, but we're still responding. You need the full mental clarity of like, a week of not thinking about your job and you're going to come back being a much more clear and happy person. I just wish sometimes that we could force people to do that because that's often what it takes. You got to rip the bandaid. You have to get outside. You have to get out of the office and then realize, you know what? The company didn't fail because I took my five days of vacation. Yeah. You role model it yourself when you're on vacation, turn it off. You know, like role model it yourself. And then also like one of the things we do on our team is we ask, Hey, what's everybody's plan for vacation this summer? Or, Hey, what the holidays are coming up? What's your plan for taking time off? Normalize that it's a good thing to have a plan and to take the time off. Yeah. Sometimes. So we totally agree with you on both, both fronts where I have to model it as well. I'm like, Hey, I'm going out and I'm not responding unless it is some crazy emergency and you're going to call me. Otherwise I'm not responding. Some of our team members actually delete uh, the apps off their phone. Yeah. Um, and so it's just like, I can't be tempted just to quickly, like I've got downtime and let me go check my email or let me go, you know, check Slack. It's like, nope, just delete it. And uh, it's amazing. But we, we do the same thing. It's like, I, but I'm also asking, like when I have leadership team meetings, great. When's, when are people taking time off? 
why haven't you scheduled something? Like, I don't care if you don't do anything, just get off Zoom, take the break. Like you gotta, you gotta encourage them to do it um, or they just don't do it. And especially when, you know, depending on sort of their comfort level of travel and doing other things, they may not want to go do that. But in reality, just being at home for a week without being on video is as beneficial as, you know, going on a vacation and those sort of things. So again, it has to start with, with the top. We've got to encourage this. Well, there's a couple of ways I think about that role modeling. One is for sure, you know, taking vacations yourself and disappearing, right? And if you know you're going to disappear and not check in on work, then that forces you to be prepared to leave and disappear, right? So what are the things that need to get done while you're gone? How do you either get it done or set it up so it's getting done or just set it up so it gets done when you're back? So role modeling that. Also, I mean, nights and weekends, man. I mean, like, you know, too, in too many companies, like Sunday night is the new Monday morning. And it's fine if you say as a leader, you want to sort of look through things, but like schedule your emails to go tomorrow, schedule your slacks to go tomorrow, or better yet, like set up your Friday so that you can have that time for whatever you want to be doing on Sunday. So that Monday morning, like maybe block out some time in the morning with your coffee to be able to get that done then. You can't win. People will be upset that you scheduled Monday morning emails either way. Then it'll be like Monday morning is the new Tuesday. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Wait, I, I do. Uh, I, I think David put a question in, 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 in a good comment in chat that I just think we should touch on, which is um, leaders need to understand what's on everyone's plate. Pushing people to take time off who actually have too much work is a major stressor. Uh, it's so important to help people manage their workload, yeah. especially junior team members. This is a lesson that I've been, I've been burned by. And I, I learned the hard way that like, now I understand, now I understand why my manager at, when I was, uh, before I was a marketing leader would always be pushing me to know, like, what are you working on? Who are you working on that with? What are the deadlines? What are your, this is why, like, I wish just people, this is a good reason this is one of those like you can't really understand the crazy things your parents did until you have kids and now you're like oh i i i understand i understand those things now but like it's why i think is that why as a marketing leader you need to push for clear strategy clear goals clear roles and responsibilities i know exactly what wendy's goal is and what she's working on i know exactly what chris's role is and what he's working on because then we can have a real conversation like you know you're we're a third of the way to the goal with 10 days to go and you're going to go on vacation for 10 days is a much different story than like, here's what's on my plate. Here's who's going to take this. Here are the things that I'm working on. So I think like very clear goals for each role, not, not just, you know, not just from a high level, but like, this is product marketing. This is what they own. This is who, who does what, this is how we're going to measure them is really important to have that. Plus one. Yep. It's almost yeah, like it's almost like marketing attribution in a sense for the team internally. It's like it's tough to make decisions about who should do what uh, unless you have kind of some some black and white answers on those things. Dave, one of the, one of the interesting questions that always comes up with crickets is I press my leadership team, what are we going to stop doing? So we've added all kinds of things over the last 18 months of new programs, new initiatives, all that. What do we stop doing? And it's like literally crickets. Everyone's like, uh, I'm like, well, that's a problem. It's always too short. It's always too short or non-existent. There's no doubt. And and, and it's like, I think it's human nature to be like, well, I don't want to lob something up that I've been doing that then I'm going to, I'm going to basically admit that it doesn't add value. But again, it's a, it's a conversation we're constantly having and saying, okay, how do we ruthless prioritize what matters in the business? And what do we just don't get to, right? And well, we, people I, are ambitious. People are ambitious. They have an appetite to learn and grow. And part of the not wanting to stop things is things that we might want to stop because we haven't quite figured out how to measure the impact or it's not measurable, but your gut knows it's a good thing. Those are the things that often get 
end up on the cutting room floor, yeah, right? So and true. so, and so, you know, um, combination of being um, inquisitive, wanting to experiment, um, having ambition around, you know, growing things, and then also the 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 KPIs, like those things are not always aligned. So it's yeah. hard. It's sometimes I've hard. Had, to- one thing that's been helpful is to like kind of publicly share, like when this kind of only happens in like planning times, but like to, to share the list of things that, that marketing is not focusing on right now is also, can also be really helpful because I think, you know, any company could make a laundry list of 20 things that they, that they, that they could do. You have to first admit that you cannot do every idea, every suggestion from the CEO and this partner and this customer. If you say yes, or uh, the, you know, HR team needs a, needs a website page. You promise them a photo shoot and a rebrand, like all that crazy stuff. You have to first accept that in this job, your job is to say, we're going to have lots of things we could do. We can't do them all. And so, Hey, here are the five things that we're focusing on. I think when I have been most effective as a marketing leader, it's been when I have, Hey, Hey, CEO, whoever I report to, here are the three things we're focused on. Agreed on that? Agreed on that. You got it. Then we can go and create a marketing plan and team strategy based on those three things. And then we can kind of always audit and adjust like, well, which one of those goals does it serve? Well, it serves our goal of building our reputation. Then yes, it's harder to measure this right now, but I think we should keep going and do this podcast every week. Well, but I think part of what you just said, Dave, is in as a leader to having that gives your team a framework to say no. And having a framework right. to say no is one of the most important things that you can give them because again, ambitious people want to experiment, et cetera, but they also are highly customer service oriented. Marketers want to help out the sales guy that asks, can you set up my view for me in Salesforce? No, I can't do that. Like, <laughs> no, right. <laughs> I might know how to do that, but I can't spend the time on that. Right. The people want to say yes. They want to say yes to the HR photo shoot. And you know what you're great. Wendy's great at, you're great at, somebody said this in chat, but like, you're great at like naming it, right? Well, you just, you just identified exactly what, exactly what that, that, that is right there, which is like, you have to, I don't even know how you said it, but it was perfect. Yeah, it's an empowerment, right? You have to empower the folks to say no. And, and one of the things that we we do is a very strong OKR process that I share with the entire marketing leadership team. And I said, hey, these are my priorities for the business. Here's what I'm going to go execute on. If there's stuff that is outside of that, you all are empowered to say no. And it doesn't matter who it is. And I have your back, right? Even if it's the CEO says, hey, I have a suggestion for X and it's not on our plan of record, then I'll go have a conversation with the CEO say, hey, it's not a plan of record. We're not doing it. I know. Um, I, I grew up inside Intel and the OKRs were super important for um, kind of the contract between you and your boss, what you're going to get done. And if your boss wanted to throw something on your plate, you'd throw up your OKRs and you'd say, let's negotiate what comes off, right? Yeah. I think that framework to say no, or that workload or the stop, start, continue, those are all frameworks for doing that. you got to handle that one like a toddler. Oh, I... I know you want ice cream right now, but you know what? We've already agreed that we're going to have uh, crackers for, for dessert. And so that's what we're going to have. Crackers for dessert? Come on. I'm making this stuff up on the fly. Cut me a break, bookshelf guy. Fine. Um, and we've talked about internal impact. We've talked about external impact. What about you? Uh, I've, I've heard Carrie Lou Dietrich, who some of you know, she was a marketing leader at Lassian. Um, she does a lot of um, CMO coaching and, and consulting now. She has a good talk track around y- your career as an investment portfolio. Yeah. So to understand like, you know, what risk are you willing to take? What is, you know, what's the outcome long-term you're thinking about 
you know, thinking about career design as a CMO, as a marketing leader. And there isn't a wrong answer to this, right? You may be like, hey, listen, I'm happy as a CMO. I want to be a CEO. I want to eventually sort of be a consultant, whatever that is. But like being intentional about what that arc might look like um, and the impact you can have and the purpose behind that for you, like all variables that go into that. So just curious how you guys think about your career and what advice you might have for others to think about that as well. I can jump in because I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but I don't have the traditional sort of CMO path where I, I didn't spend the majority of my career through marketing up the ranks. Um, and to some degree, it was a bit in, intentional where I think of myself more of as a generalist uh, than a purebred marketer, although that's what I went to school for an MBA and everything else. And I spent 10 years at Adobe sort of focused on that persona, but I had a lot of different roles. Like I ran product, I was in customer success, I was in the sales organization. Um, and, and so I think about it is as a long-term business leader, what are the skill sets I can grow and build upon that ultimately for me, like I want to run a company. Um, I, I would like to, you know, to be a CEO. And so I'm, I'm building those experiences along the way uh, to help me set up for that. And, you know, I, I left Adobe after 10 years, had a fantastic run. I was running the go-to-market and product marketing for the creative cloud enterprise business, little products like Photoshop and design that some of you are familiar with. And I, and I made a jump after 10 years to a small company, you know, called Box uh, that had less than 2,000 employees uh, um, and to run customer success, right? And a lot of people are like, why the hell would you do that? Um, it's like, because it was new, it was different. I was going to take lessons learned and build and grow in, in, in the culture I loved um, and ultimately gave me an opportunity to be CMO. So I think for you just have to be deliberate around taking chances, get uncomfortable and always be learning as is sort of my motto. Wendy, what do you think? I think always be learning is an amazing uh, motto. And I, for me, it's like the first thing I do in the mornings, I learn something. I go learn from my network. I go see what's experimenting. I go read what Dave's saying in his Facebook group. Dave, um, do you love that? You know, I, I, I do do that. Um, and I, I, I also have like run every kind of functional area of marketing at one point in my career. So I consider myself a generalist too. And also think a lot about the fact that, um, you know, a modern marketer is way more revenue and data focused, uh, than, uh, you know, than, you know, we, maybe we were required to be 10 or 15 years ago. And so we have the skill set now to go left and right from our position to other leadership roles on staff. I think my next job, I want to be a CRO. You know, I understand. Oh, I love process. that so much. I love it. Clip yeah. that, post that. Let's post that. We need that clip. Let's post it. Let's blow that up. There's not enough talk about why is, why is the CMO not the next CRO? I love it. Yeah, but in a modern, in a, in a modern SaaS go-to-market, it's a logical place for the marketer to go next um, is to own, own revenue period. And, and so for me, that's, that's what I'm thinking about. And thank you, Julia. She just said I'd kill it. I appreciate that. I love that. that. <laughs> no, but it's true. Like everybody, everything is like, you know, market does, should marketing report to the marketing reports into CRO. It, you, you really hear the, the other case. Hey, my role model is Helen Baptist from Path Factory. Um, like she's my, uh, you know, wannabe queen right there. I want to be her. She is the COO. She owns marketing. She owns customer. She owns uh, sales. Boom. Let's, let's do that. Mm -hmm.